down Are they gonna bail you out Or just run you around They said you should have a house The American way A dollar down, a dollar a month And you never have to pay Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. Sometimes get tough, even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 530 of the Survival Podcast. It is October 13th, 2010. It is a Wednesday, it's hump day. We are about halfway through the week for you guys that live for the weekends. Uh, today we're going to talk about something interesting. I'm going to do what I call a myth-busting show. This is Myth-Busting Day on TSP. 5.30 just seemed like a good episode to do this in. We're going to talk about four different types of myths today. Law enforcement myths, money and debt myths, gun myths, and survival and uh, end-of-the-world-as-we-know-it style myths. And I think this will be an interesting show. I, I try to come up with fresh topics and things and... This one was spawned by a friend that said something to me recently, and I went, you don't really believe that, do you? And then I realized how many people really believe that, and some experiences I've had that show me how many people really believe that one myth. And I thought, well, I wonder how many of my audience believe that. So I decided I would go out <clears throat> and put together a group of 20 myths. And I actually didn't do the most common myths, because there's a lot of myths out there that... I think this audience is so aware of it would just be redundant of like preaching to the choir. There might be one or two today that you'll probably go, duh. And uh, there's probably a few more that you'll know. Uh, but there's some that are just so prevalent that even though I know a lot of you guys know this or we've talked about it before, I had to include them. But I'll bet you, I'll bet you there's at least four to five of the 20 myths that when I first tell you them, you'll be like, well, that's true. And then we're going to discuss how they're not. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of today's sponsors and the rest of our housekeeping. Sponsor of the day number one, the Lifesaver 4K water bottle from Ready-Made Resources. This is a portable small water filter, bug-out bag size filter, that will provide up to 4,000 liters of clean water for you push through a .015 micron filter. That allows it to filter out, filter out all viruses and bacteria. This is an on-the-go product. This is for something when you, you know, this is not something for your house, right? That's what a Berkey's for, right? This is something when you're in the field. And it makes water portable and available wherever you go. And it was originally conceived of by its creator when witnessing how little fresh water that was clean and safe to drink was available after the tsunami in Indonesia. Great product, great sponsor, ready-made resources. Check that product out. Might belong in your survival planning. The uh, next sponsor of the day today is Sawtooth Tactical. All the stuff you need to live that tactical lifestyle. SawTac is uh, really a great sponsor. And they've also launched a new site called Sawtooth Supply. Uh, where they offer everything that they've always offered and a little bit more. I think they still have their other site up too, and that's where the, the banner's pointing now. But the reason I bring that up is if you're a member of the Support Brigade, on their new site, since they have some new technology there where they can offer discounts, you get 10% off of everything SawTac sells. Even if you're not in the Members Brigade, make sure you tell them if you order something from them, you came from the Survival Podcast. They always seem to throw in a little extra goodie if you do that. Next up, I want to remind you that we have a very limited time opportunity for people at the Survival Podcast Gear Shop. 
to get uh, Swiss Army Trekkers engraved in the blade with TSP logo in the, in the date 2010. We're going to do one run of these. They're not coming back. Limited time offer. Great deal. Check out the gear shop. I'll put a link in today's show notes. And later today, I'll be doing a blog post about that to give you a little bit more information and let you know how you can order them. But if you go to the gear shop right now, you can check them out. They're pretty easy to find. They're right on the front page. Second post there. And, uh, again, once we close down orders on these, these are pre-orders. They probably won't come in until December. This is a special run we're doing. When they're gone, they're gone. Uh, next up, make sure you're checking out our YouTube channel. I'm about to uh, start finishing up the Biltong video series. I'm going to do it all at once so people are like, when's episode three? When's the next phase? Um, but for those who don't know, I'm doing Biltong for you. And I've got a few strips, hang like three strips I hung in my uh, office the way I always do it. And I did the rest of it on the uh, Excalibur dehydrator. My preliminary results... In the first day or two, it looks like the dehydrator is doing a better job. Long term, you're going to get better results doing it the traditional old-fashioned way, which requires no energy, just hanging up in a dry environment. We'll see how it is in the end, but that's what I'm seeing, and I have some theories as to why. Again, subscribe to the YouTube channel so you get that series as soon as it's available. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You get exclusive content available only to members. Uh, and also remember, uh, we're only 20 episodes away now from episode 550. I need your calls. I need you to do this for me. If survivalism, homesteading, TSP, our community, our forum, if all of that has made a difference in your life, please do me a favor today. Pick up your phone, dial 866-65-THINK, and leave an up to two-minute message about the impact it's had on your life. Don't worry about not sounding perfect or anything like that. Just say what's in your heart. We did this with the one-year anniversary show. It was amazing. And there were some people that I could tell were a little bit nervous, but you still came off perfect because you're real people. You're not trying to be a radio DJ here. Please participate in this show. It will mean a lot to me to have so many people do it that we have to go two hours on it. I would love to do that, and the community wants to hear from you. With that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. So as I said in the intro, recently I'm, I'm sitting with this friend of mine, a very intelligent guy, by the way. And he says to me, we're, I don't know what we were talking about. I think we ended up talking about like CSI or something like that or some TV show about law enforcement. And we were talking about um, something that came up with, he says, well, you know, it is true if, you, if you're in some kind of situation and there's an undercover cop and you think the guy's a cop and you ask him, are you a cop, that he has to tell you whether or not he's a cop. And that kind of leads me into my first group of myths, and it's um, five law enforcement myths. A lot of you probably believe that. <clears throat> I mean, this myth is so prevalent. This, is, this myth's been in movies where, like, a cop has been in a situation where he's asked that, and he's like, yeah, all right, I'm a cop. So, like, he officially sort of admitted it and then blows it off as just, you know, like, like joshing around and got through a tight situation. All. There's a problem with this myth. It's 100% mythical. It's not true. No cop has to tell you he's a cop in an undercover situation, in any situation, ever, unless he chooses to tell you at the point where he tells you to go on your way or wants to arrest you. If you go up to somebody to buy dope, and I don't think you should, but if you do, and it looks the guy looks like a dope dealer, and you say, hey man, before I buy this, i got to ask you a question. And he goes, yeah, go ahead. Well, are you a cop? And he says, nah, shit, man, are you a cop? And then you buy dope, and it turns out he's a cop and he arrests you? You're going to jail! You're going to jail and you're, you're, you're done. You're sunk. Of course they can lie to you. If they couldn't lie to you, there wouldn't be any point in doing undercover operations. 
They wouldn't send out letters to people that say, Dear recipient, you've won a free boat. Come down to City Hall and claim it. And when you walk in, they go, Oh, you know what? You didn't win a boat? We have a warrant for your arrest, Ask Cloud. Come over here, let's book you, and let's get this settled out. That is a complete, total myth. Ask any cop, he'll tell you the same thing. And anybody that thinks I'm wrong about this, any of the myths I give you today, I want you to prove it. Don't just tell me. Show me in print where it's proven that I'm wrong. Because I've checked all of these. Very few of them are really opinion-based. Most of these are totally factual, one side or the other based. Based definitely the law enforcement ones. Here's the next law enforcement myth. Threatening to call your lawyer will keep a cop at bay. You know, we always see this. The guy's like a rich guy and the cops are going to take him away. And the guy whips out his cell phone and goes, I'm going to call my lawyer. You know what that'll usually get? That'll usually get your ass kicked for you and your phone tossed down the road uh, like a hockey puck. Or some version thereof. If the police are going to detain you, put handcuffs on you, and take you to jail, they don't care if you're going to call a lawyer. Of course you're going to. If you have an attorney, of course you're going to call one. You can call your attorney once you're safely booked into the jail. You can call the attorney all you want to. We'll talk more about phone calls in a minute, too, because there's another big myth there. But there you go. That That is just, in fact, that's stupid. That's often likely to take something where you could maybe just be diplomatic and maybe nobody's going to jail tonight and turn it into, okay, jackass, you know what? You're going to jail. right? And I'm not putting this like pro-cop or anti-cop here. These are just straight-up myths. And this is, this is a big one that will get you in trouble. I tell people, I think if you have an attorney, and you should, you should keep your attorney's card on you at all times, and you should call your attorney if you end up in legal trouble. If they tell you that you need to talk, you say, no, I don't need to talk. I need to talk to my attorney. That's fine. And there's nothing wrong with that. If the minute you think that you're suspected, no matter how innocent you are, shut your mouth. Get an attorney involved. Either your attorney or a public attorney, if you can't afford one, as they tell you when they Mirandarize you. Another myth we're going to talk about here in a second. But threatening to call a lawyer, bad idea. Doesn't help, won't do you any good. If a police officer is going to take you to jail, there's a whole litany of things that are going to say whether or not that arrest was warranted. If he's not confident in those, he's not taking you to jail in the first place. So the fact that you're calling a lawyer, that's fine. In fact, he would prefer that you call your lawyer after you get to jail, because here's the thing, folks, you don't plead your case with an officer. Once they say, I'm taking you into custody, shut up, because you're going. No matter what you do, all you'll do is make the situation more difficult for yourself after they tell you that. Because you don't argue guilt or innocence with an officer. You argue guilt or innocence in a court. All right. The next one is, officers must read you your rights when you are arrested. And if they don't read you your rights when you're arrested, you go free. How many of you believe that? How many believe that you have to be read your rights when you're arrested? You do not, there is no requirement to give you your Miranda rights when you are apprehended. None. Some officers will, some officers won't. It's situational. The time you have to be advised of your right to keep silent to an attorney, etc., is at the time that they are questioning you after you have been detained. They are not required to read you your rights if you've not been detained and are only being questioned. So, let's say you get drunk off your ass, right, Cop pulls you over, gives you a sobriety test, and in the middle of your sobriety test, you walk over to his cruiser and take a leak on his front tire. 
He's going to put you in handcuffs, take the video evidence, admit that into, into his report, you know, and then at that point, if they want to interrogate you, if they want to ask you to confess, then they have to Mirandarize you at that point. But if they just feel like, okay, the fact that this guy got out of his car, wobbled all over the place, and peed on my tire is enough for a conviction, and that's all they want to press the case on, and they don't want to ask you to confess at all, they never have to Mirandize you. Further, if you're arrested and you are not Mirandized, and at some point they interrogate you, and you speak after that, and eventually you, you realize, hey, I should have said that, everything that you said during the interrogation, after being apprehended, has to be thrown out if you can prove you weren't read your rights. That's true. Everything else is still admissible. Like the video of you peeing on the front tire of the cop's car. Or whatever it is that they have against you. You do not. Some people are arrested and convicted. They're never read their rights and they have no case to appeal based on not being read their rights. Because their interrogation is not used as part of the conviction. Right? We have a picture of you with the crowbar prying open the door, going through the door, and coming out with the stuff under your arms on the security camera. You look up at the camera, because you don't know it's a camera, we have a perfect view of your face, and as the prosecution and the, and the law enforcement community, that's what we want to base our case on. We don't even want to ask you if you did it or not, because we don't need to. Guess what? We don't have to Mirandize you. Plain and simple. Um... The next one is not telling police what you know is obstruction of justice. This is another one that comes from TV shows. You know, the, the, the dude's mom knows where he's hiding. And he says, ma'am, if you know where he's hiding and you don't tell me, that's obstruction of justice and you can go to jail for up to five years for that. Wrong, wrong, wrong. You are never compelled to speak either prior to or after being detained in any way, shape, or form. That is the Fifth Amendment of the United States Constitution. You are required to, if you're asked to identify yourself, to identify yourself and do so truthfully. And if you do provide information, to not knowingly provide false information. So if you knew where your son was hiding and he was hiding in Georgia, and you said, I believe that my son went to Florida, and you did that intentionally and they can prove it, that's obstruction of justice. To say, for the officer to say to you, where is your son hiding, and say, I, I can't tell you, I can't comment on that, I just can't say anything at all. That's not obstruction of justice. Technically, technically, if you said you didn't know, <clears throat> but that one is so tough to prove. But your best advice in any situation where you have information you do not wish to divulge, keep your mouth shut. Just shut up. It's when you give false information or falsely identify yourself or tamper with evidence. Okay, so your son left a note saying where he was going and you destroy it. That's tampering with evidence. Refusing to divulge information that you may have on your person is protected under your constitutional rights. Simple. Um, next one is, you get one phone call from jail. When you go to jail, you are guaranteed a phone call. Wrong. In fact, most of the time in jail, if you are a decent person and you keep your mouth shut and you do what you're asked to do, you'll be able to make as many phone calls as you want. Some jails have phones that are basically all local calls are free and anything else you have to call collect. Some have pay phones. Uh, but the, the, the whole thing where, you know, the sheriff throws a guy into jail, flips a quarter and there he goes, boy, you get one call, make it good. If he doesn't get who he's looking for, you know, then he's screwed. Myth. The fact that you're guaranteed access to the phone is also a myth. 
Uh, they cannot give you access to a phone, specifically if you act like an ass clown. So if you come into a basic jail, you know, with a holding tank, and, you know, there's a bunch of guys milling around, most of them for public intoxication and things like that, people that are going to bond out in the next day or two, at the most, uh, and, and there's a couple phones on the wall, people wait in line to use the phones and things like that, and you start acting like an ass and say, I'm going to hurt somebody in here if you don't let me out. They'll throw your ass in a little cell, and there's no phone in there, and you don't get a phone until you shut up and start, stop acting like an ass clown. So there you go. All of those law enforcement myths, and a whole bunch more, by the way, complete myths. Not true, not true even a little bit, not one of them. I know some of you don't believe me. Check into it. You'll find out I'm absolutely correct. So let's move on to some more de uh, myths, some things that are more likely to harm you, uh, because I think most people around here that listen to this show are fairly you know, law-abiding individuals that really don't try to get in any trouble with the police, and... Uh, Except in the case of mistaken identity or something like that, you're probably not going to have a lot of encounters. But the one thing we all have to deal with is money and debt. And there's a lot of advice out there from people about money and debt. And we have to think about the source of the advice whenever we're taking it. The first myth is inflation always punishes savers. People that save their money are fools because inflation is just going to make their money worth less and less until it becomes completely worthless. And they'll no longer have anything and they should spend their money now versus, you know, holding on to it and saving it. And my response is, really? So, let's say I started saving money in 1985. And I did such a good job saving money in 1985 that in 2010, just by stuffing it under my mattress, I have $200,000. Now, I have been punished by the inflation tax. There's no doubt about that. That $200,000 would have bought me more in 1985 than it will buy me today. But first of all, I didn't save all $250,000 or whatever it's, the $200,000 in 1985. I saved it between 1985 and now. Okay? So, I didn't have it all in 1995 anyway. Maybe I got, maybe if I saved it completely even, Somewhere around 1997, 7, 1997.5, and a half, right? That's when I would have had half of the money. And then I saved the other half over the next, you know, 12 and a half years. Right? So, I didn't have it anyway. But here's my other question for you. If it would have been so much better to just blow that $200,000 or $250,000, whatever number I said, if you saved it between 1985 and today, and today you were sitting on a mattress with $200,000 in it, Since it's worthless, will you send me your money? Will you just give it all to me? See, it's not that inflation doesn't punish savers. It's what people mean when they say that. It's though you're just better off being in debt and getting rid of all your money as quickly as possible. Or always being in a highly leveraged risk investment so that you can make enough interest to offset inflation. The reality is that inflation makes saving money even more important, not less important. If a bag of bread would have cost me 50 cents in yesteryear and cost me $1.50 today, I need more money today than I had yesterday. So hopefully I save some. Inflation, again, does punish spenders, but not in the way that people use this myth. How many times is this myth used by somebody that you know works for the gold industry and sells gold? You know? ah, you got to get rid of that money. you got to get it turned into gold. Or sell something. An investment a product, what have you. When anybody ever tells you your money's worthless 
at the same time they're asking you to spend it with them, you have to ask yourself the question, well, if my money's so worthless, what do you want it for? I mean, isn't that an interesting question? So inflation-punishing spenders, true and false, depending on how it's used. And most often in our circles, in, in alternative journalism that's out there today, it's false. Because it's taken to the extreme. The next one, and this is one most of you will know is a myth. Most of you. Some new listeners might not. It's why I included it. And it's so prevalent in our society, I couldn't leave it out. The government is who creates our money. How many times do you The government's printing money. The government's printing money on demand. The government does not create our money. The government actually has very little control over how much of our money is created or destroyed or, or put into existence. Our money is created first by the Federal Reserve, which is not federal in any way. It is a private group of banks run by private bankers as a corporation, and it's run for profit. Our government does not print our money. It does not create our money. The Federal Reserve creates our money. Second, they don't print much money at all anymore, in the true sense of the word print. Because most of our money, 97% of our money today, exists as phantoms, as ones and zeros in a computer somewhere. Yes, only 3% of the money supply in the United States today actually exists with a picture of a president on it. That's all the pennies, nickels, dimes, quarters, ones, five, tens, twenties, fifties, hundreds, right? The few thousand dollar bills that are still out there. I think there's five hundreds. Is there five hundred dollar bills? I'm not sure on that one, folks. Let me know. Put it in the show notes. Don't send me, folks, uh, one real aside here. When I say something and you want to let me know where I was wrong or let me know where I was right, as long as you do it respectfully or add something to it, don't send me an email. It just comes to me. Go to the survivalpodcast.com, look up the show you're listening to, post it in the show notes in the comment section. If you don't want to give your real name, make one up. If you don't want to give your re real email, make one up. And nobody sees your email but me anyway, by the way. Your email address, that's, I'm the only one that sees that. You know, if you don't want to give away your blog's address, leave the, you know, the URL blank. But put your comment there so everybody can see it and participate and learn from it. Because I'm not going to get all your comments back on the show. But yeah, the government only prints 3%. In fact, the, the, the Federal Reserve and the Treasury Department working together only actually print 3% of the total money supply anymore. Here's the bigger thing. Most of our money, this is the one that a lot of you don't know. Or don't really realize, I guess. Most of the money created in our society today isn't even created by the Federal Reserve. Say that again. Most, some of you are just, you're just linking it together right now and going, oh yeah. And some of you are going, what the hell? Of course the Federal Reserve creates our money. Well, they create the base of our money. Then it's pumped into something called a fractional reserve banking system. In that banking system, when you go to Wells Fargo or Citibank or Bank America or Frost Bank or whatever bank you go to, Jack Spierko's Bank of Banks, whatever it is, and you come down to Jack Spierko's Bank of Banks and say, Mr. Spierko, I'd like to borrow some money, please. And I say, well, I'd be happy to loan you some. What do you want to do with it? You say, well, I want to buy a house. And I look at your credit worthiness and how much money you want to put down and all, and I go, We can loan you up to $200,000 to buy a house based on a down payment of $25,000 or $20,000, 10%, whatever it is. $40,000 on 20% down, whatever whatever my terms are with you. And you go, well, that'll be just fine. I, I, I want to buy this house. Here's the appraisal. And then all of that kind of comes back to But, I mean, this is what's really happening. There's a fair market appraisal, so I as a banker know 
how much risk I'm really taking based on how much money you're putting down. So I know now that if I required you to put 10% down and you're spending $200,000 and I'm loaning you $180,000, I'm risking $180,000 against a property with a $200,000 value. And then I give you a check for $180,000. You actually get the check for about five minutes on closing day. You sign the check over and it goes to the seller. The sellers probably get to get 20 grand out of that or 10 grand out of that or nothing. Because if he owes 180 and he sold for 180, he gets nothing. If he owed, you know, or 200, if he owed 200, sold for 200, he gets nothing. He probably owes some money on the, on some of his costs, right? He might get a check for a thousand bucks. He might get a check for fifty thousand dollars. But he's not going to get the whole check unless he had the house paid off. So that money went into his hands. Some of it goes into his pocket. Most of it gets transferred back door to the other mortgage holder, to whoever was loaning him money on his house. So the money, most of the money in the, in the, in the loan moved from one bank to the other. Here's the interesting thing. Zero dollars of that money, if he took the two, $200,000 full mortgage, I take that, or you take that out with me. Zero of those $200,000 existed before you signed the loan papers. I did not loan you $200,000 that I had. I took the consideration, right, which is the collateral of the house from you and used it to create out of thin air $200,000. That $200,000, most of it went to my fellow banker who is now able to use it to do this again and again and again. Most of the money in America is created by banks after the Federal Reserve puts the basis of money into circulation. That's the truth. The next one is when people like me talk about returning to a, a com commodity-based money supply, a gold standard. The, the Keynesian says, can't even do it if we want to. And here's why, buddy. There's not enough gold. If we got all the gold we could get our hands on as the United States government, all of it, everything that's already in Fort Knox, built Fort Knox 2 and 3 and 4, shoved it all underground somewhere, bought up every bit of excess gold we could, even if we made it illegal to own gold again the way FDR did, and took up everybody's gold and issued paper. If we got all the gold we could get our hands on as a nation, there's not enough gold to run our economy. We can't have enough dollars in it. Well, first of all, limiting how many dollars we have is, is, is part of that to begin with. But if we had a gold-backed base currency with a fractional reserve banking system, which is the real problem, which we shouldn't do, we could create just as much money as we ever have. But if we, even if we pulled that back or reduced the leverage against that, there's no thing that says that we would have to go back to the fact that one ounce of gold equals 20 U.S. dollars. Because the other side of this myth is, well, if we had a gold-backed currency, no one would be able to afford to do business with us. We'd have to be a 100% importation society. We'd never export any goods anywhere because our dollar would be so powerful that it would be impossible for us to do business as an exporter ever. Lies, 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 lies. Because the Constitution of our United States gives the Congress the power to set the weights and measures of the currency against whatever they wish to, be it gold or silver or anything else. So, what they could do right now today and leave everything the way it is and still go to a gold standard to say, we have X amount of gold and we have X amount of currency in circulation. So, so the currency is worth X ounces of gold. 
You know, you could say basically that um, one ounce of gold is worth 1,200 U.S. dollars, right about where it is today in the open market. And then lock it there and contract the, the currency supply if gold strengthens and increase the currency supply if gold weakens. And let gold control the float. And if there was a time where there was a need to increase the monetary base, then all that, all that you would have to do is decrease the number, increase the number of dollars that are represented by an ounce of gold. It's still, you can change the weights and measures. Now, can we do that willy-nilly? No. And here's the reason they don't want to do it. It would make it immediately obvious to you how much your money has been devalued every time they did it. You'd be able to look at it, and any, any person with an IQ over 75 would go, oh, my dollar just went down in value by a dime. They don't want you to see that, but there's no reason we can't return to a gold standard. The fact that there's not enough gold is complete nonsense. All that having less gold does is make each piece of gold worth more dollars. That's it. It makes gold more valuable in our internal economy. That's it. Simple. You can let the currencies float and adjust and play all the political games we do. We shouldn't play all these political games, but there are some things with the monetary system that are sophisticated and beyond a lot of people's ability to comprehend where we do need to maybe control a currency against a competing nation. But it doesn't mean it can't be done with gold. It just means that what's being done is transparent and obvious to the individual. That's it. Um, the next way, the one on... Um, on money and debt before I move on to gun this, that's my next one, is if you're not happy with a mortgage, you can just give the house back. Remember when you came to Jacko and uh, I wrote you a check for $200,000, created money out of thin air, and you took that money and you gave it to the seller, and then 180 of it went into the bank, and 20 went to the seller's pocket, and uh, they went off on their way, and now you're upside down in your house because you bought it at the wrong time, and You, you're, you're behind on your mortgage, and I'm like, dude, I'm gonna have to like, you know, repossess your house or something, or let's work something out. Let's, you know, can we defer you one payment or whatever? And you go, you know what? I've just had enough. This house isn't worth what I paid for anymore. I'm gonna throw the keys at you, and you can take the house back. Here's the problem with that: is your banker. I may be a lot of things, and some of them despicable, but what I am not is the person you bought the house from. You can't give me the house back. I'll take it as consideration because it's the only option I'm left with. I'll t uh, seize it as collateral. It's the only option I'm left with. But you're not giving the house back. You can't make yourself feel psychologically better by telling yourself that. You didn't buy it from me. You bought it from the seller. I gave you the money. You gave the seller the money. That's why you will physically touch the check in a closing when you take out a mortgage. The check will not go directly to the seller. It will come to you in your name. You will endorse it over, and it will be transferred to the seller. Because it's your money. I didn't loan the money to the seller. I loaned. I didn't buy the house right, and sell it to you. That's not how it works. You bought the house. I loaned you the money to do so. You can't just give a house back. And if you're using that philosophy to make yourself feel better about walking away from a mortgage, you're just wrong. Doesn't mean there's not times to walk away from mortgages. There's classy ways to do it, and there's shitty ways to do it. Please try to be classy. Please try to keep your honor if you have to. If you're in that situation, I understand. It's, there's times where that's what makes sense to do. There's times where you just, I, I'm never going to fix this. 
I, I'm financially unable to fix this problem. I can't do it. I can't wait it out. I can't wait for recovery. This is just going to make my life worse and worse and worse. And I can't sell the house. The bank won't agree to a short sale. Nothing I can do. I'm going to vacate the property. Do it properly. But you're not giving the house back. That's not what's happening. Someone's going to take exception to this. You explain to me your rationale on how you're giving it back when you never bought it from me in the first place. You can tell me that, oh, the system shouldn't work that way since, you know, some kind of legal technicality or loophole, you know, that because we created that money out of, I, hey, I've admitted that we created the money out of thin air. That's the way our legal financial system works right now. That's, that's what you're under when you do it. And you're the one that put your name on the line and said you would make be accountable for whatever amount of money you borrowed. How it was created doesn't matter because it's how it's all created. If we're going to use that, then you should give away all your money and, and have no money. If you're going to stand on moral ground with that because all the money was made that way. All right? So let's move on to gun myths. This one will be interesting. Okay, so the first one is really for a lot of you guys out there that are, reload, out there that are reloaders or some of you guys that have magnamania. And the first myth is the best way for me to increase the range of a rifle is by increasing velocity. If I can just make that bullet go faster, I can increase the range. Uh, it's not that it's not true. It's just not the best way. It's not the most efficient way. It's not the most practical way. And here's why it's not the most practical way. If we think about it, if you go out and buy five different boxes of 308 ammunition, all with uh, 165 grain bullets in them, the muzzle velocity of all of them will be within 100 to 150 feet per second. Most of the time, these cartridges are loaded to their peak efficiency anyway. If you hand load, it's not like you're going to be able to go in there and just cram in more powder. That's how you blow the breech out of your gun and blow your face off. So the increasing of muzzle velocity has already kind of been taken to the hilt with each individual cartridge. Now, what the person will say is, well, but by increasing velocity, what I mean is go from 308 to 300 Winchester, and you will get greater range. But... The biggest or the easiest and most efficient way to increase your range is by using a bullet, a, the slug, the part that actually loads in the end, the part that flies through the air, with what's called a higher ballistic coefficient. A 10% increase in ballistic coefficient over a 10% increase in muzzle velocity, the ballistic coefficient will blow away the long-range performance. So the best way that you can make that rifle shoot further instead of trying to eke out another 25 feet per second by trying every powder at maximum load and finding the one that chron chronographs the highest is to find for your hunting situation or your tactical situation the bullet with the construction that will work that has the highest ballistic coefficient. That's the best way to increase rifle range. Um, the next one is, and this one, a lot of you guys probably know this one, but this is another one of those few that are so prevalent that I've got... To put it in here. People shot with big guns are blown backwards. See it on TV all the time. Guy comes in the house, guy points a shotgun and boom, he blows backwards. You know what happens when you shoot somebody with a shotgun? If it's immediately lethal, they drop like a sack of potatoes straight down to the floor. If it's not immediately lethal, they have whatever damage they do and they move based on whatever they still have the capability to move with. Guns don't drive people backwards. Mythbusters, the real Mythbusters on TV did this one. You know, they, they put a 200-pound pig and they hung it as a human analog uh, where it was like you could just, any grown person, even probably a little kid, could just go up and just tap it 
with their, their hand that it would fall off this hook. So it was just barely on the edge of the hook. So if it was going to blow a person backwards, it would knock this thing off the hook. They shot it with everything. The only thing that made it even fall off the hook was a close-range shot from a shotgun slug. Buckshot didn't even do it. But of the handguns, rifles, everything, it just... Now, it doesn't mean a person might not fall backwards. It depends on their, you know, how much physiological reaction they have. The reason that this myth is actually dangerous, though, is that it gives people a false sense of security that if I just get this big .45 handgun, you know, and nothing wrong with it, I, that's what I carry, right? Uh, or, you know, my .44 Magnum or my .357 or just a big enough gun. When I hit somebody, man, it's going to blow them backwards. And even if they're not dead, boy, I'm going to have a chance to put that second round in them or, you know, get out of the way. Not how it works. It's just not how it works. Many times people that are hit in gun, in gun confrontations don't even know that they're hit. Many times they do, but many just as equally, many times they don't. When President Reagan was shot, now it wasn't with a .22, but when President Reagan was shot by John Hinckley, he was thrown to the ground by Secret Service, and when he saw some blood initially that, that came out of his mouth, he thought when the Secret Service agent threw him to the ground, he must have cracked a rib. In fact, when they got him to the hospital, it was hard for them to find the entrance wound, but it nearly killed him. That's the reality of gunfire into the human body. Does it blow people backwards? Uh, next one, and this is one that I think maybe a lot of people out there have some illusion of, or they put even if they don't have the same illusion, they they put the percentage way too high. Walking around carrying a gun, knowing how to use it, legal carry, the whole nine yards, been to a few courses, know what you're doing, prepared to use it, makes you 100% safe. Absolutely does not. First of all, you have to understand one thing about the fact that you're carrying a gun, and any confrontation is going to be an armed confrontation with a gun because you brought one. So there's a good case for a retention holster right there. So you get into a scrap with somebody who's not armed, but physically stronger than you, and you're going to rely on your gun, you still have to go through the motion of drawing the weapon. During close quarter situation, there's a potential for that weapon to end up in their hands. Now this isn't the media bullshit where you're safer without a gun. That's bullshit. That's complete bullshit. And I'm sick of hearing it. You know, I've been watching a new show, folks, called um, The Event. And this guy that's been helping this FBI agent in it, they're going to go into this house, and he says, I think you should give me a gun. And she says, without training, you're more dangerous with a gun than without a gun. They're going after armed people. There's only one person he has to look out for, her. She should give him a freaking gun. He probably knows what he's doing with it based on his character's background. I don't want to digress there, but that that's a myth, too. Call it a bonus myth, myth 21 today. But the, the myth that you're safe just because you're armed is crap. Run into a guy like my buddy Valerie Azanoff. He has a thousand ways to take that gun away from you before you can pull the trigger. And we, when we were, we had him here last time, we handed people guns. You know, made sure it was clear. Cocked the hammer back. Said, here, go ahead. And if he was within ten yards or less, people couldn't get a shot off that would have hit him. And he ended up with the gun in his hand. Every single time with every single person from the novice to the expert that we put in that guy's hand. Now, this guy's exceptional. If you've got a guy like, this guy's, you know, trying to kill people. If you've got a guy like that after, you're done. Right? Unless you're the same guy. And then one of you's done. That's not realistic, but it does make the case that just because you're armed doesn't mean you're safe. Because here's the real problem with this. 
This assumes that in any violent confrontation that there's a true moment of confrontation. This assumes that the guy doesn't walk up behind you and put a knife in your back and then take your wallet and your gun while you lay there bleeding from your kidneys. Right? This assumes that when the guy walks in and opens fire in, in the restaurant, the, the first gunshot you hear is the one that hits you in the chest. Because if you don't see the guy and he just randomly starts shooting and you're the first person hit, your gun doesn't do you a lot of good if you're mortally wounded. Or if you're just completely incapacitated. This does not mean you don't carry a gun. This does not mean you don't get training. This does not mean that being an armed citizen doesn't make you inherently safer. But it does mean you can't rely on it 100% of the time. Ask law enforcement officers who have been in altercations where they were unable to draw their gun before they were injured. Against things like dogs. I've seen on TV, on, on, on some of the uh, the Animal Planet stuff, where an officer is attacked by a pit bull. The guy fires nine shots, doesn't hit the dog one time. And you say it's because he can't shoot. No, it's not because he can't shoot. because the dog was shredding his, his other arm and his legs violently at a speed that human beings don't operate at. Carrying a gun does not make you 100% safe. It simply increases your likelihood of survival. The next one is... In, in states that have concealed carry laws, you're going to have to check this state by state. But I'm talking about Texas right now, and I imagine there's similar things in other states. If a sign says you can't bring a gun in into anywhere, legally you can't. So you go to your dry cleaners, and there's a sign up there that says no guns. You can't bring your gun in. In Texas, there's a specific statute that allows a private owner to say you can't bring a gun into their establishment. That sign has to include that statute. It has to say, in accordance with. Most gun signs that I see in public establishments throughout the state of Texas, most say the unlicensed possession of a firearm at this location. If you are a holder of a concealed carry license, that sign does not apply to you, and it does not infer that the person that owns the establishment is anti-gun in any way. In fact, they're probably pro-gun. That's why they put that sign up. The unlicensed possession. Why? If you live in a state that for concealed carry requires a license, that means all concealed carry owners are welcome to bring their gun into that establishment. Now, maybe the person that put the sign up doesn't know that. Usually they do, especially a place of business. They're going to talk to a lawyer when they post something like that. Because it's the unlicensed possession. There are signs that say, no guns, period, and cite the statute. Your individual state, again, you'll have to check on what their laws are, because this is a state-level regulation. And there are places that will cite other laws that say you can't bring any weapon whatsoever in. But when you see that sign with a gun, with an X through it, that says the unlicensed possession, and you are a licensed holder, it does not apply to you. In fact, it protects you. It allows the shopkeeper to look like he's keeping guns out of his establishment when he's actually inviting them in. I can tell you a dry cleaner, I don't really use dry cleaners anymore because I don't go to the office anymore, but dry cleaner I used to use, big sign, big 45 caliber gun on there, big line through it like Ghostbusters, but that's what it said, the unlicensed possession. And I talked to the guy, I said, you do understand what that means? He goes, it was a Korean guy, he goes, I understand exactly what that means. He says, I, and so he, told me, he said, I understand exactly what that means. It protects me, it protects you, and it protects everybody else that walks through this door. Very smart guy. 
So just because there's a sign that says no guns, you got to read the whole sign before you know whether it applies to you as a legal licensed carrier of weapons. Uh, the next one, and most of you guys are going to know this one flat cold, but it, it, it's, with guns, I can't leave this one out. Military guns or assault guns or assault rifles or anything like that are more powerful than civilian sporting arms. I can't tell you how many people believe this. I can't tell you during the, you know, when the, the assault weapons ban was expiring, how many people I talked to that didn't know guns that were sure. There has to be something. And I'm like, okay, AK-47? Yeah, yeah, okay. You know, SKS? Yeah, but here's, here's the, the cartridge. This is what it is. This is what it does. This is how far it reaches out. This is what its power level is. Here's my completely legal the entire time Remington 760 pump action in 3006. Power-wise, there is no question that the 3006 is a more powerful cartridge than an AK-47. I could go get a, a Remington 7400 semi-automatic, semi-automatic SKS. Is put the equal magazine capacity in them? You know, one's actually stripper clips, one magazine, any clips in magazines. You guys are going to get all whiny about that again. But if both are loaded with 10 rounds and both are semi-auto. The sporting gun is more powerful and just as capable, and certainly more accurate. And the danger is this, of this one is it's used for getting the foot in the door with gun control. Well, we just want to make the AK-47s and the, the drug dealer guns illegal. It's just a step forward. I won't be, be, berate that one because you guys know it, but I also know if I left that one out, I got like 100 emails. Dude, I can't believe you didn't put that one in there. So there you go. There it is. And this is one that have your non-gun friends, you need to have this conversation with them. And not in a, a confrontational way, in a very simple way. Hey, do you think that this is the case? And then explain to them why it's not. There's nothing that will make the case better if you happen to own ammunition than taking you know, a 9mm military cartridge and setting next to it a 44 Magnum sporting cartridge, and then take a SKS round, you know, 7.62, uh, 39, and put that down, and then take a 3006 Springfield and set that down and go, sporting assault. Explain the lie away. Please do that. We need to defend our rights. And that's one way that you do it. Because you don't let them get the foot in the door again. They already did once, and it clo and their foot was shoved out of the door. Don't let it back in. The next one is, and this is our side that does this, okay? This is the pro-gun side. A gun is only a weapon when it's used as such. So my Ruger 22 that I use for hunting squirrels is not a weapon. It's just a gun. The day that I take it pointed at people start shooting people with it or use it for defense, then it becomes a weapon. Nonsense. Gun is always a weapon. It should always be treated as a weapon because that's what a responsible firearms owner does. Guns are made to kill things. You say, well, a bat is a weapon when somebody hits somebody over the head with it, and when they're hitting a baseball bat, a baseball with it, it's not a weapon. A baseball bat is made for hitting baseballs. A rifle, a pistol, any form of gun is designed to deliver projectiles of sufficient size at sufficient velocity to make something dead. Guns are weapons, and we should not be afraid of that. We should not deny that. We should not like act like a bunch of cowards with that. Of course they're weapons. And we are responsible owners of those weapons. If we're properly trained, 
not by government, but by a parent, a mentor, a friend, a school that we choose to go to, whatever it is. If we properly know how to safely handle our weapons, we are responsible owners of those weapons. Because, trust me, that target pistol, the day somebody breaks into my house, they became the target. The device itself has not inherently changed. Its function has not inherently changed. It's not like a baseball bat. The baseball bat becomes a weapon, but its purpose was hitting balls. The gun fires bullets because that's what its purpose was. Bullets are lethal. They're always lethal. The reason this one's important is because it gets us into an argument with anti-gunners that we don't even need to have. I don't care if it's a weapon. right? It's my constitutionally protected right to self-defense that gives me the right to own the damn thing. Because if we have the argument, well, a weapon is a gun and a weapon. Okay, well, then what does arms mean? Does arms mean weapons or guns? So, okay, well, an AK and an SK, those are weapons. So you don't need those. Keep your sporting guns, and we'll take away your weapons. It weakens our position. It doesn't strengthen it. Never think that way. The other side of it is, if it's a gun, and then this is a weapon, the weapon is inherently more dangerous than the gun. Whether it be from the anti-gunner, or from the shooter himself, who allows himself to back off of his safety requirements, because, oh, this is just for sporting use. They're all lethal. They're all built with the intention of lethality. Because they all come from a cartridge that was designed for that in the first place. What about a pellet gun? Eh, we can call that a gun, I guess. I still see it as a weapon. It's capable of inflicting harm. It's designed to send a projectile out to hit and destroy something. We back off on that thought, and the next thing we know, we're shooting somebody in the eye. Even if they're not dead, we're, we're injuring them, possibly for the rest of their life. Remember, you'll shoot your eye out, kid. Well, it does happen. It does happen. So, a gun is a weapon. And that's not a bad thing. Next one I want to go into uh, survival and end of the world as we know it myths. I've got about, let's see, five more myths here for you guys. And we'll wrap the show up. So, the next myth uh, on end of the world as we know it is... The be- and I think you guys are going to know a lot of these because I'm preaching to the choir a bit, but we need to talk about them anyway uh, because there is some of this out there. Because I hear it all the time, especially in other forums and places like that, uh, not as much in our own backyard, but we have new people coming in every day. So let's talk about some of these. One is the best place to survive during the end of the world we know it is the wilderness. Really? <laughs> I thought the best place to survive during the end of the world as we know it would have been a well-prepared location where I have all the things I need to survive, versus the wilderness where most people, when they end up there, are stuck there and are looking for a way to get out. You can know all the things you want to about hunting and fishing and foraging, but you know if you're out in the wilderness, eventually seasons change and things become scarce. The other thing is, don't think you'll be the only one to snap to this idea of, I'll just run out into the woods. The, the reality is, the, the running into the woods during a disaster in 99.9% of all situations, is probably the worst decision that you could make. Unless you already live there anyway. And there are people that kind of live in the wilderness right now. They don't even really have a house. If that's you, that's fine. You go on with yourself. But I'll tell you what, even that person, the day that 5% of the, even 5% of the population decides, hey, there's resources out there, and resources are short, and we're going to get them. That land of plenty you live in becomes a land of scarcity overnight like that. 
The worst thing that most people could do is run into the wilderness during a disaster. And now somebody's mad right now. The keys are already going. You're typing away. Hey, I'm open to your viewpoint, but you have to make a compelling case to me for why this is not true in the vast majority of situations. Remember, the vast majority of disasters aren't the end of the world as we know it, and even in the end of the world as we know it. You know, some people could say that's happened. Things are different today than they were five years ago. Very different. And some of the things are never coming back. Just, it's not the best place to be during a disaster. It's a last resort, not a first choice. The next one is, the end of the world as we know it, hell, that's going to be easy for the people that are prepared. The people that are real survivalists and have a year or two worth of food stored up and lots of guns, lots of ammunition, ready to go, all the camping gear, all the reserve fuel, everything, as prepared as me or more. Maybe they're t three times as prepared as I am. End of the world as we know it's going to be easy for them. Hell, it might be fun. Bullshit. The real scenarios we talk about, The stuff that wipes out half the population or more isn't going to be fun for anybody. I don't care how prepared you are. It isn't going to be easy for anybody. I don't care how prepared you are. You're not going to hide. You're not going to not be seen. I don't care where you go. If you have stuff, other people will eventually find out you're there and you have stuff. You'll have to defend yourself. We'll talk more about defending yourself in a second here. But one thing I don't want anybody to ever think that if we get into the real deep catastrophe, and you make it through the first 48 hours, you're not killed by the impact or what have you, that after that, as long as you're prepared, you're good to go. We don't want this shit to happen, folks. We really don't. The stuff we talk about preparing for on this show, most of the time isn't the end of the world as we know it for this very reason. A lot of the things we think will save us in the complete end of all being, all things, won't even help us a little bit. A pandemic doesn't care how much food you have stored. Now, if you have a lot of food stored, you can go to a remote location. You can increase your odds of survival. Yes, you can still get infected, and it can still kill you. And every choice you make is like a two-edged sword. The more remote you go, the less protection you have. The more protected you are, the less protection you get from anybody. I don't want protection. Well, let's go on to the next myth then. As long as you have enough ammo and food, you'll be okay. Hey, man, there could be a whole roving horde of zombie bikers coming after me. I got 10,000 rounds of ammo, and my wife and my son know how to use guns, too. Um, dude, if there's a couple thousand people, you lose. If there's a couple hundred people, you lose. And you don't lose once in a while. You lose every single time. A loosely organized mob can be turned around with a shot at the feet of the leader or into the head of the leader if the shot at the feet doesn't work. An armed, determined, hungry, starving mob will not be fought off by a couple dozen people. It will not happen. It's never happened. It's never worked. It's never worked for anybody. It's not worked for military units that are prepared, that have support. When they're outnumbered high enough, they lose. What makes you different? You know? And, and, and the food thing, too, eventually can wear out. You know, part of this myth is that you can conceal what you have. I keep saying this to people, say, well, if you have a garden, you have a garden, then your neighbor will know that you have food. And if shit hit the fan, they're going to come trying to take your tomatoes away. If you are surviving and not dead during a shit hit the fan scenario, then people know you have resources and they're going to come looking for them. 
And it's a delicate balancing act between who you help and who you don't, when you help and when you don't. And the worse the disaster, the less likely you are to survive no matter how prepared you are. I do think there's inherent advantages to being in a rural area with less pressure, with people that are generally more prepared. But I think the only way we're really going to get through major shit hit the fans is to turn the vast majority of people in America back to what they were in 1900. Preppers that don't even know they're preppers. The only way we're going to get through this stuff is if the average person has 60 to 90 days worth of food in their home at all times. And the way we're living today, that ain't going to happen anytime soon, so we do the best we can under the circumstances. But you're not just going to be okay because you got lots of lots of bullets, beans, and band-aids. The mentality is more important than the resources that you have. The ability to be in some cases, a state of, uh, be the person that creates stability, that holds people together, to be a leader, or to be a solid participant with other leadership. But the thought that if I just have enough bullets, I'm going to be all right, that goes right to the next one. The next one is, and, and this is the one that anytime somebody says it, I want to literally go find them, grab them by the scruff of their shirt, and just smack them in the face. And just say, what the hell are you thinking even saying that, even in jest? And you're going to know why I feel that way when I tell it to you. If you just have a gun and know how to use it, you can take what you need from others. I've seen that in so many survival. My survival kit is my my AR-15 and, and a thousand rounds of ammunition. If, if that shit hits the fan, I'm just going to take all the stuff you stupid people store up. <laughs> okay, um, while the, the, the huge mob can can breach a house easily enough. Whatever that house has ain't going to last a mob very long. And you as an individual that thinks you're going to be the lone gun going out there and just stealing whatever you want, see how that works out for you the first time an accountant puts a .44 Magnum through your the back of your skull when you're reconning his house and you don't realize he was out doing whatever, taking a dump in the woods and happened to see you there. Don't think that the American people will lay down in front of the, the one guy that was smart enough to know to have a gun. There's over 50 million people in the United States that own guns, folks. 50 million. There's only 300 million of us out there. Now, I'd like there to be more gun owners, but 50 million. And there's a lot of people that own guns that own more than one. How many of you that own guns own more than one? How many of you own more than five? How many of you own more than eight? How many of you in a shit-hit-the-fan scenario where you're not completely out of resources but there is a potential for people to come start taking stuff away and all would take trusted friends and neighbors that don't have guns, go, this is how it works, this is how you point it, this is how you aim it, this is how you load it, here's this and three boxes of shells, someone comes around here, Tom, let's keep them away. So what I'm saying is the number of people that are armed would go up almost overnight. How many people in that scenario would use guns and ammunition that are in surplus as barter items? Thinking you're just going to go around and take what you want, good way to get your ass killed. There's no winner on either side of that fight. It's a terrible situation we never want to see. It's the last resort. It's the worst situation out there. Now, the last one is a little bit more nebulous. Because it ends with a blank. And the last one is, the biggest threat that we face is fill in the blank. UN jackbooted thugs, the New World Order, this, that, the other thing, etc. I want to read something to you now. This is a post that I wrote on the Backwoods Home Preparedness Forum 
in May of 2006. And I thought this would be good for a couple reasons. One, it actually crushes this myth pretty hard. And two, I think there's a lot of people out there that maybe wonder about this Jack Spirico guy that started this show in 2008. How deep do these things that I tell you run deep really run? How, how long have I thought this way? Well, you can go look this uh, post up. I'll put a link to it in, uh, in the show notes. And you can go take a look at this and read the whole thing, but I'm going to read it word for word for you. And again, this was May of 2006. I started the show in June of 2008. This is two years and a few months before I even thought of the Survival Podcast. And the question was, again, what is the greatest threat to our survival? And there's all kinds of statements here, and there's all kinds of stuff about the government and, and, and conspiracy theories and everything else. And uh, here was my response, and I think my response may be a little bit different today, but 90% of it would stay the same way. Depends on how one reads the question as to how it gets answered, doesn't it? For instance, if you ask me as an individual what the biggest threat to my survival is, the answer is easy statistically. It's getting killed in my car on the interstate on the way to and from work. After that, heart attack, stroke, cancer, probably all fight over the next three places. Move to my home and to my household and living in North Texas, there's no question, my biggest threat is tornadic activity. After that, I guess straight line winds during severe weather. Flooding is possible, though if my home flooded even a, even a bit, half the city would be gone. Too far from shore to fear hurricanes, other than as anything is a source of the bad weather that we get anyway. Wildfire ain't likely here. Local riots would likely focus on Dallas or Fort Worth, so we could have that issue, but not likely in the way L.A. did, at least at my residence. Of all of these, riots would be the easiest to handle, as we could quickly convince any rioters that our place has a substantial negative risk-reward ratio. That's the loosely armed gang, folks, a little aside there. Next, I'm not big on the belief. Uh, now, on the national or global scale, which is what I believe the intent of the question was, I have to say the biggest risk from a percentage standpoint is pandemic. This one is very a very good reason to stockpile food, etc. The best way to survive this will be to shelter in place and don't get exposed to others until the disease runs its cycle. I'm not big on the belief that, quote, black helicopters, unquote, are coming. If something like that happens, all you guys that think you're going to hole up and fight off the troops are killing yourselves any, kidding yourselves anyway. Just ask the whack jobs how well that works out in Iraq once their location is known. Oh yeah, those guys can't provide any input. Global government is a huge threat to our way of life, <clears throat> but not to the lives or even our survival as people. This threat is far more a silent snail than a pending shit-hit-the-fan doomsday fantasized about by many survivalists. The stormtroopers will never come. If they did, we could fight them, and indeed, 25 million-plus deer hunters alone in the U.S. would prove a big problem for said troopers. The global attack is, is more of a hard-to-detect cancer than a hard-hitting virus. How is it coming? Again, folks, I want you to realize as I say this, I wrote this in 2006. Global warming, look at this point, even the founder of the Weather Channel has called global warming a, quote, scam, unquote. The planet warms and chills. Don't you remember the people in the 70s and 80s on the news saying we were about to come into a new ice age? Global warming and the, glo and the global government scale is about taxation. Most of the world is made up of socialists that believe the top 10% of income earners should pay 90% of the tax. 
Now, here's the problem with that statistic. No matter how poor you are, if you have at least a minimum wage job and a place to live, you are in the top 10%. If you make six figures, you're in really deep crap as you're in the top one hundredth of one percent. It is important to understand that no government exists to solely harm individuals. At their core, they exist to serve the masses from a specific ideology. Most government officials think they are actually helping. Don't think I'm being soft. This makes them more, not less dangerous. Consider you had to choose to negotiate with a criminal trying to steal money just to steal it, holding 20 people hostage, or a religious zealot who thinks Armageddon is at hand, holding the same 20 people hostage. Who would you rather negotiate with? People that believe in what they are doing are capable of atrocities that those who do it only for personal gain could never commit. My view is that the socialist-minded individuals have decided that global warming is a great way into, quote, their vision, unquote, for the earth. If it fails, there will come a new, quote, danger, unquote, and they will use it. Why do you think China is immune to the Kyoto Treaty? No need to socialize China, is there? Don't go holding up India as a capitalist example, as they are pretty damn socialist too. Look around the U. Look around. The U.S. is the last bastion of true capitalism, and we are far from the free land we were just 120 years ago. The erosion is slow and steady. It won't come on one dark night. It will be given away piece by piece over time through the ignorance of a people who have failed to understand the simple words of those who will sacrifice liberty for safety deserve neither liberty or safety. So, what, what the answer to that really was? What's our biggest threat? Us. Us as a people. Us as a people that will allow these things to occur. Us as a people who will be apathetic and ignorant by choice. And you'll say, well, I'm not apathetic, Jack. I'm not ignorant. I listen to this show. I listen to other shows. I get other information. I'm prepared. I'm proactive. But what about your brother and sister Americans? Would you say the majority of Americans are well-informed about our potential threats or ignorant to them? Would you say that the majority of Americans are well-informed about the lies and, and, and scams in our government or ignorant of them? Would you say the average American is well prepared for things to go wrong or completely apathetic towards them? Would you say that the average American really believes that he as the individual is the holder of power or the government itself is the grantor of power? Our biggest threat to our survival as a people, as a culture, isn't the United Nations. It isn't the New World Order. It's us. It's the United States people. And for those of you in other nations, it's probably your people as well. It's a belief that the government's supposed to fix things for us instead of the fact that we're supposed to fix things for ourselves. This is the one myth in this whole show that's really more about my opinion than something that's concrete that I can point to as fact. But I challenge you to prove to me that the majority of Americans aren't ignorant and apathetic. I dare you. I've seen shows where people go to Miami, to the University of Miami, hold up a map of the United States without the state's borders and just a plain Jane silhouette of the United States and say to a student at the University of Miami, point to Florida, and some of them can't freaking do it. I remember back in the 80s when George W. Bush, the first George Bush, George H.W. Bush, was the, first, was the uh, vice president of the United States. 
On the same show, I watched people on our streets ask the question, Who is George Bush? Most people thought he was the president of the Bush Beer Company. This was the 80s. Do you think we've gotten more or less intelligent? More or less apathetic as a people? The biggest problem that we have, the biggest threat that we have is the apathy and the chosen ignorance of the American people. And there's the good news. Something we can do something about. We can live as an example that you don't have to be that way. You can't force this stuff on people. You can't force people to learn. You can't force people to become educated. You can't force them to look at information. You can't force them to see things your way. If you did that, you're no better. You're no better than the deceptors, the, 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 the deception-oriented people in our government and in our corporations that do the same thing with a different message. Forcing anybody to do anything is a denial of their liberty. We should not be forcing anyone to do anything until they've taken liberty from someone else. You steal, you go to jail. Otherwise, you stay free. That's simple. That's not necessarily even an anarchist economy or, uh, uh, society. That's simply a liberty-oriented uh, uh, society with basic rules so that everybody's liberty is protected. So we can't force the sheep to turn from grasshoppers to ants. But what we can do is a really good job of living our life in a very positive way. See, here's the thing. When you go out and you live your life in a way that makes you happy, you become magnetic. People want to know, why, why are you so happy? Well, this is what I've done with my life. Why have you done that? Because life's scary and it sucks, and this makes me more stable. I'm more likely to get through problems. Well, what kind of problems? Well, these kinds of problems. You'll find out that the person that's apathetic, they actually worry about those problems too. But they bury them deep in their gut and they cover it up with a credit card, and it makes them sick, and that's why we have more ulcers and heart attacks and cancers today. Stress is causing more of it than the shit they put in our food. And they do put stuff in our food. They put stuff in our food that's killing us. But stress is killing us faster. Anxiety is killing us faster. Anxiety and stress are the children of apathy and ignorance. Boy, I gotta say that one again. I don't know where that came from. Anxiety and stress are the children of apathy and ignorance. When you, you stay apathetic long enough, when you stay ignorant long enough, part of you as a human being knows this is wrong. It's not that simple. It all won't just go away. It's really there and it just stays inside of you. And the anxiety and stress starts to eat you alive like a cancer from the inside. And that's the way most of our American citizens are living today. Don't hate them, even though they're the biggest threat. Don't be angry with them. Pity them. They're making themselves miserable. They're making themselves cogs in the machines. They are the freaking battery to the matrix. But we're not really in little tubes with wires plugged in our ass, and we have to swallow a metaphorical pill to fall out. It's not that bad. All we have to do is stand up and say, no more, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm going to live my life on my terms and my way. You do that. And you know what? The others follow. That's the song you hear every day on this show. Make your own way. The others will follow. The revolution is you. If you're going to be part of the revolution, you've got to stop believing in myth. 
you got to start believing in fact and well-reasoned thought. And you've got to live your life from a state of empowerment at all times. You are the most powerful force in your own life. Never let anyone take that away from you. And when you are the most powerful for, for, force in your own life, and you use it to make your life better, you will improve the lives of those around you. It's the most selfless thing you can do to live your life from a statement of power and improving your own life. Do that. Don't be bogged down by myth. Don't be bogged down by bullshit. And you'll take people along for the ride with you and just maybe we'll get through this thing together in a much better situation than it has to be, than it will be otherwise. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there cares, they're living for today.